Well, obviously, we handpicked those songs for, uh, in preparation uh, to prepare our hearts really for tonight's message uh, out of Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. And I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn back there with me as we begin tonight, Matthew chapter 6. And again, for those of you that are visiting with us tonight, we've uh, launched into this series. I think we're in, into the fifth message uh, so far on uh, this subject of prayer. And uh, we're using the Lord's Prayer uh, as our model to follow. And we believe that is why uh, Jesus gave us this prayer, not to simply be recited in church every Sunday, but really as a pattern for prayer. And so we're going back to this uh, week after week and learning more about what our prayer should look like. And, and hopefully our prayers are lining up more and more with uh, this model prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. Let me reread it for you. Uh, again, you follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Jesus said, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this precious prayer that uh, we know and love so well, and yet we uh, have misused it, it seems, in the church by just simply reciting it without any heart to it and never really thinking about how this should dictate the type of prayers that we should be praying that are more extemporaneous prayers, not just memorized prayers and, and recited prayers, but just prayers from our heart. And so, Lord, teach us tonight a little bit more of what it means uh, to pray to you, to talk to you the way you uh, taught us to through your Son, Jesus Christ. We want to learn to pray like he prayed, to talk to you like he talked to you. And so, Lord, I pray specifically that your kingdom would come even in these next moments as I'm uh, expounding this phrase, that this would be part of your glory being magnified uh, in this time and on this earth and in this place tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I speak for all of us, and that is this, that I love being an American. I'm extremely grateful that God and His sweet providence allowed me to live in this great country. And while I enjoy traveling overseas and ministering other parts of the world, I experience this euphoric sense of relief whenever the plane touches down back in Houston, back in America. And, and I let out literally a sigh of relief and I walk into uh, the airport and into the customs, the U.S. customs, and I get to, I don't have to go into the visitor line, I get to go to the, the, the citizen line and I'm just, there's a sense of pride that wells up in my heart uh, that I get to be an American citizen. And as a citizen of the United States, I enjoy unprecedented and unparalleled blessings and freedoms unlike any other country in the world. Well, the inherent problem, however, is that we have it so good here in America that it's easy for us as Christians to forget that this isn't our real home. 
It's easy for people who live in, in, in barren wastelands, right? Uh, who have nothing. They, they live in abject poverty. Uh, there, there's a longing for heaven uh, that they realize, hey, this, this is not our home. They don't want this to be our home. But I think if we were all honest, some of us would be okay living for all eternity here down on earth in America. And so we need to be reminded that this is not our home. And thankfully, God does that sovereignly at times when He ordains changes in presidencies and changes in policies, uh, i.e. the passing of the new health care bill that we're all reeling from this week. Uh, But it just serves as a helpful reminder for conservative Christians like us that we are citizens of heaven. And while we're called to be loyal citizens of our country, our ultimate allegiance belongs to God. And while I'm thankful to be an American, I'm way more thankful that I'm a Christian. And this past week has only served to remind me of that, uh, that, that I am so glad that while I'm an American, I'm also a Christian, because that's way more important. And while everything down here may be changing and fluxing and, and, and going in directions that are scary and are sad and all those kinds of things, and are, uh, we, we know that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. And so the world is not our home. We are aliens and strangers on this earth, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. This is a, our temporary place of residence. 1 Peter 1.17 talks about how, how we're just here to stay for a while, during our stay here on earth, as Peter describes it. Our eternal home is in heaven. And as believers living in a foreign land, we need to practically cultivate and maintain this kind of heavenly-mindedness. Uh, a couple of ways we've tried to do that in our family, Kelly and I have always... Uh, well, uh, recently, in recent years, have tried to, to remind us of this, remind ourselves of this fact. When, when something goes bad, when something breaks, when something doesn't work out the way we really wanted it to, and, and it truly is just an earthly thing, we just say, you know what, we're going to heaven. <laughs> so the kid just pulled out, you know, the, took the bike out of the garage and the whole way took the, you know, the side of his uh, uh, handlebars and scraped the entire side of the car, right? <laughs> we're going to heaven. Does it really matter, right? Or this thing didn't work. It doesn't matter. We're going to heaven. We're trying to cultivate this in, in, in the lives of our kids. And uh, just this past week, we were on spring break, and we were talking about, uh, this, about, about the movie rating system. And, and, and the reason why we got on that subject is the kids, you know, as most teenagers do, they, they get excited about the next latest, greatest movie, right, that's coming out. Ooh, are we going to be able to see this? And ooh, we got to watch it. Oh, I hope it's not an R, because if it's an R, then it's just mom and dad's not going to let us watch it, right? We can't watch it. But maybe, if it's PG-13, maybe, it's a, maybe we can watch it, right? And uh, so we just said, hey, guys, time out. I said, you can't trust the world's rating system. And I've just watched in my lifetime the thing just get lower and lower, the standard just getting lower and lower and lower. And what used to be an R is now a PG-13. What used to be a PG-13 is now a PG. I've walked out of PG movies because I was offended by what was being said or talked about um, because you can't trust the world's rating system. And so I, we were talking about to, to this to the kids. Say, listen, guys, this is the mindset that you need to have, that as an alien and stranger, you should be surprised. You should be even shocked if there was any movie that Hollywood makes that you'd be able to watch as a Christian. Instead of assuming that, oh, we can watch most of them and maybe a few of them are off limits. No, you should be shocked if there's one that we could sit through as Christians and feel like God would be honored by it. 
And so we need to think that way as, as heavenly-minded. And, and I think one of the best ways to cultivate and maintain a heavenly-mindedness is through prayer. Nowhere should our heavenly-mindedness be remembered more and expressed more than during our times of prayer. Because prayer is essentially us as loyal subjects reporting to our king in heaven. That's what prayer is. And and whenever we pray, we are entering in God's throne room in heaven to beseech him to provide us or to, to provide for us and to protect us during our sojourn here on earth and to forgive us when we indulge in the fleshly lusts that wage war against our soul. 1 Peter 2.11, right? Uh, you are aliens and strangers. You need to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. And so we need to, when we, when we indulge in those fleshly lusts that constantly wage war against our soul, we need to ask for forgiveness. But again, it's just a reminder. Whenever we pray and we seek God's provision, we seek God's provision, we seek God's forgiveness, we're doing that as those who are on alien territory. We're in a foreign land. And that daily battle that we face with the world and with the flesh and and with the devil should be enough to remind us that we are living in enemy territory and uh, make us long and plead for the day when our king comes back to take over the world, to defeat the devil and deliver us from our sinful flesh. And as a child of the king... Whenever we pray to our Father, as we've learned initially, the very first thing here that we, were, we learned was how to address God, and we aren't to, to address God as this God who's so far away and we're, we should walk into His presence trembling. No, we should, we should acknowledge Him as our Father, as our Daddy. And so whenever we pray to our Father as His child, as, as a child of the King, we should passionately plead with Him to come back as soon as possible. Why? Because our hearts are burning to see him glorified as the sovereign ruler of the universe by establishing his kingdom here on earth so that he is worshipped and honored and, and obeyed and adored by everyone on this planet like he is by everyone in heaven. And I think that's what he's saying here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That on earth as it is in heaven I think applies not just to his will but also his kingdom. And so the passionate cry of every true child of God should be the last prayer in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, come quickly, Lord Jesus. When's the last time you, you begged God in your prayer time to return? Because you just can't wait to see him. You cannot wait for him to come back and to be honored and glorified and worshiped and adored and to have his kingdom come. I love how Andrew Murray really just summarized this, this phrase, your kingdom come, in his classic book with Christ in the School of Prayer. By the way, if you're looking for a, a kind of a good little resource to, to read along with this series, or uh, I would encourage you to pick up that book with Christ in the School of Prayer. It's probably something you could pick up at a Christian bookstore or on Amazon or something. But he just has some great ways to say things like this, for example. He said, quote, the Father is a king who has a kingdom. So this father who we're supposed to be praying to, our father who's in heaven, our dad's a king. And he's got a kingdom. And he says the son and the heir of the king, we're heirs of the king, right? 
has no higher ambition than the glory of his father's kingdom. In time of war or danger, this becomes his passion. He can think of nothing else. The children of the Father are here in the enemy's territory where the kingdom which is in heaven has not yet been fully manifested. What is more natural than that than to cry with deep enthusiasm, thy kingdom come. I love that. And so we come tonight to this phrase, thy kingdom come. And I think we should feel like a little kid with his pail and shovel, standing on the beach looking at the vast ocean. When we, when we come to this phrase, thy kingdom come, it's like... And, and this is, while it's the shortest phrase here in the Lord's Prayer, it is the most comprehensive, it's the most all-encompassing phrase. And one sermon, let alone a lifetime of sermons, could, could never fully expound all that's wrapped up in this particular petition. So we're really just going to scratch the surface tonight and and hopefully give you the essence of what uh, Jesus was wanting us to to pray about when he said, your kingdom come. Now, this is the second of six petitions. The the address is our Father who is in heaven, and then the first petition is what we looked at two weeks ago, hallowed be your name. This is the second petition, your kingdom come. The third petition is... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. The fifth uh, petition, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And the sixth petition, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But again, I want want to point out here, notice the order of these six petitions. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the first three petitions. And then the second three petitions are give us Forgive us and do not lead us, but deliver us. And so it's your, 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 us, us, us. Again, what comes first in our prayers? God. God's glory is more important than our needs. And so Jesus was teaching us here that we need to put God's interest above our own personal interests. And rather than being preoccupied with what what, what we want, we need to be preoccupied with what God wants. And what does God want? He wants to be hallowed. He wants to be glorified. He wants his kingdom to come. He wants his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the main focus of our prayer shouldn't be on making a name for ourselves or building our kingdom or getting our will or agenda done. Our number one concern in prayer should be for the fame of his name and the advancement of his kingdom and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so again, these first three petitions are are all about God's getting glory and getting honor, which is way more important than us getting any stuff that we might need or want. You know, it was such a joy this morning to, to get on our knees this morning, or get on, get on my knees together alongside men who understand this. In our elders meeting, and we had our staff there, and we just, we just got on our knees and prayed, and it was just so refreshing to hear just the spontaneous prayers that before we asked for anything, before we interceded on behalf of the, the sheep here at Lakeside uh, and the particular needs that are in people's lives, it, it was just a time of worship and praise and, and crying out to God that he would be glorified and honored and that his kingdom would come and, and that we're just a small part of his kingdom work around the world. And thank you so much for allowing us the privilege to be uh, part of your kingdom and, and workers in your vineyard. And I mean, it's just, it was just a wonderful time. And, and, it, and it's obviously men who have been 
uh, instructed and influenced uh, in the Lord's Prayer because it's being reflected in the way that they pray. We didn't just get on our knees and say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? But we were praying according to the pattern that we learn uh, in this prayer. And again, we, we, we said that this Lord's Prayer is, it isn't just some pretty prayer that, that we need to you know, type out and you know, put, put on some painting and hang it on the wall somewhere like we were so good at, right? We love to take verses out of you know, uh, the Bible and put them on things and we look at them and we memorize them and recite them. Okay, that's, that's fine. I don't, the issue is you don't take all your pictures of Bible verses off your walls, but to remember why this is here. Jesus, I don't think, ever wanted us to memorize this and routinely recite this. That wasn't why he told the disciples this prayer. He gave it to them. He gave it to us to serve as a model, a guide, or a pattern to teach us the proper priorities and and, and passions and perspectives that we should have when we pray and and the proper petitions to make when we pray. And so we have to ask ourselves, what what, what was Jesus meaning here by this phrase, your kingdom come? And, and really, through this petition, it's, it's more of a priority. It's more of a, a, a perspective. It's more of a passion uh, than it is a petition. It is a petition. But, but it expresses, it's a petition that expresses a priority and a perspective and a passion. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what does he mean? Your kingdom come. What, what is God's kingdom? Because we're talking about God, right? We're praying to God, our Father who art in heaven. So what is God's kingdom? Well, when you think about kingdoms, you, you naturally think about kings, right? And, and, and castles and forts and knights and princesses and uh, princes and maidens and moats and dragons and all that stuff, right? Well, essentially, a kingdom is the territory over which a king reigns. And if we take that as our basic definition, the, the territory over which a king reigns, well, let's apply that to God. Since God created everything that exists... His kingdom extends throughout the entire universe, right? And so he's the king of the universe. In fact, the word there in the Greek, the word for kingdom, simply is translated rule or reign. And so you could say it this way, your rule come or your reign come. And so Jesus was teaching his disciples here to pray that God's sovereign rule or reign would be manifested again on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to have you look with me at some verses that talk about God's kingdom. This is a a theme throughout the Old and New Testaments. And I just want you to see some key passages. We could never read them all because there's just too many of them. It's such a major theme in the scriptures. In fact, uh, Bible scholars and commentators and teachers uh, they, they have all different opinions of how to best summarize or, or, or describe or explain or define the kingdom of God. But let me just read some verses. For, look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. And here is David praying uh, this great prayer of dedication uh, it, it, when he was giving money and resources to the building of the kingdom or building of the temple for the Lord, and in Second or First Chronicles twenty nine eleven, he says, "Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all." And so he's exalting God as the King of. Everything. Look at Psalm 47, 
Psalm 47, verse 2. Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So here we have the concept of of this great king reigning over all the earth. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 19, one of my favorite verses. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. And we just got done studying the book of Daniel the last fall, which is all about the king of kings, right? And we said the theme there is uh, that God reigns. Our God reigns, serving the king of kings in a world of pawns. And uh, notice, again, just reminding you of, of a couple key passages in Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. This is what Nebuchadnezzar said after he was humbled by God because he thought he was sovereign and that he was the one that reigned over the earth of the, of the time. And God humbled him and said, no, you're not. I'm the one who's sovereign. And this is what uh, he says, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. But at the end of that period, that period of insanity, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him and who's, who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, And to him, talking about Christ, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then in verse 27 of Daniel 7, And the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And we see this carried over into the New Testament and really climaxing in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And here's the fulfillment of all these prophecies in the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Of course, that reminds us of that great uh, song, right? Uh, the, the, the Messiah, uh, where, and he shall reign forever and ever. Handles Messiah. And so generally speaking, The kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign rule over the universe. He is the king who has reigned, is reigning, and will forever reign over all things for all time. That's what we mean by the kingdom of God. He's the king who has reigned, he is reigning, and he will forever reign over all things. And yet, ever since his... um, sovereign reign was established, which you really can't even say that it began, because as soon as, you know, God always was, so he always, he always was the sovereign king of everything, right? It's never like he, it began. His sovereign reign never began. He, as long as he was God, which was forever, he was the sovereign king of all things. And yet in eternity past, when God established himself as the king of the universe, his kingship was challenged by who? By Satan, Lucifer, and all those who he influences to rebel against their creator God. And you can just look at 
uh, from eternity past and, and the fall of Satan all the way up until today and, and, and all, all the way to, into the future, we see how Satan has not only rebelled against God's kingship over him, but he also influences everybody else in the universe to rebel against God as well. And so he rebelled in heaven, and he influenced a third of the, the angels to rebel with him, right? And they were all cast out of heaven. And then he shows up next where? Where does Satan show up next? In the garden, Genesis chapter 3. And he influences Adam and Eve to rebel against the kingship of God. God had set Adam and Eve in the garden to be his, to be his, uh, um, his, his, his subjects who would establish his kingdom, right, on the earth uh, and, and to, to, to build that kingdom and to oversee that kingdom. And so they, they were influenced by saying to, to rebel against God's kingdom and God's reign and rule over them, and they were cast out of the garden. Well, then we see God's reign again revealed in the nation of Israel, and uh, he established the nation of Israel to show his glory, to establish his kingdom here on earth, that all the other nations of the world would, would worship him as the one true God, and uh, so he delivers them out of Egypt, right? And they get out into the wilderness, and uh, guess what they start doing? rebelling against his reign, against his rule. And so he says, fine, you're all going to die. And so they all die in the wilderness. Well, their children come into the promised land. And uh, if, if you remember, uh, the, I'm just kind of just briefly kind of giving you an overview of the Old Testament here. When they got to the promised land, things went well as long as uh, Joshua was the leader. But as soon as Joshua died, it says that there was no one to take his place, right? And there was a season in the, in the nation of Israel in the history of Israel, where uh, there was no one to, to fill that leadership vacuum, and it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? The time of the judges. And uh, so they would be attacked, and they would cry out to God, and he would, he would deliver them through, the, through a judge, and this happened in a cycle after cycle after cycle. And finally, uh, God raised up Samuel um, to be a prophet, to be a priest, and that's when the people appealed to Samuel and said, hey, guess what, Samuel? We want a king just like all the other nations, well, that was a rebellion. That was a in-your-face, God. We don't want you to be our king anymore. We, we don't longer want a, uh, a, a theocracy, right, where you are reigning as our king. We want a monarchy. We want like everybody, all the other nations of the world. So they were rejecting God as their king. And God told Samuel, don't worry about it. I'll, give him, I'll, I'll teach him a lesson through this. And uh, the first king, obviously, was Saul, and he was, was uh, not a God-honoring king. David, of course, was a God-honoring king, uh, and it was through uh, David that God promised uh, the future reign of the Messiah, right? Uh, but then after David, things kind of went downhill really fast, didn't they? Through Solomon and all the other kings, the kingdom split, and you just see one king after another king after another king rebel against God. And finally, what did God do? God punished not just Israel, but also Judah by taking them into exile. Well, then God makes good on his promise, and he sends the Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ, in, in, the, in the New Testament, in, in, in the Gospels. And, and what do the Jews do? Did they, did they embrace him as their king? Their long-awaited king? What did they do? They rejected him. And when, when Pilate said, what, 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 what shall I do with your king? And they said, we don't have any king but who? Caesar. Another slap in the face of God, right? We'd rather have Caesar as our God, not the Messiah. And so they crucified him. And as you know, God punished the Jews by, by allowing Jerusalem to be destroyed by the Romans. And uh, the rebellion uh, 
of Satan and the world continues up until this day, uh, people today who live in a rebellion against God. They, they refuse to acknowledge that there is a God, or if they do, they refuse to honor him or give him thanks. They're being influenced by Satan to, to, to rebel against the kingship and to deny the kingdom rights of their creator. And guess what? God punishes people like that by allowing them to die and go to hell, right? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, um, separation from God. And ultimately, uh, this rebellion will climax, right, when uh, in the Antichrist, who Satan will influence to be uh, the one who rebels against God's people and he sets himself up as God, another slap in the face. Again, this is all Satan's attempts to, to undermine and overthrow God's kingdom. And, and, and God's kingdom has always been opposed by the kingdom of darkness, led by Satan. And so, so Christ will come back and he'll, he'll defeat Satan. He'll throw Satan into the pit uh, for a thousand years. At the end of that millennial reign of Christ on the earth, it says that Satan is going to give one more last-ditch effort to try to lead people away from the Lord. And ultimately, he'll be judged and he'll be sent to hell. Well, all that to say that that the whole Bible, and I wish I had more time to develop that, but you know the Bible well enough to see that it's just been one rebellion after another rebellion after another rebellion after another rebellion in different forms, with different people, with different consequences, um, but ultimately undermined and, and influenced by who? By Satan who is the primary opponent of, of God. And he's been trying to set up his own kingdom. Interesting, when, when Jesus came uh, and went, uh, came to earth and went out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, to be tested by Satan, remember one of the temptations was, hey, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I will give you what? The kingdoms of the world. That's all that Satan had to bargain with, Okay. And, and the Bible talks about how Satan is the, the, the prince and the power of this world. That, that we lie in the, in the lap of Satan. That, that he has a delegated authority uh, as, the, as the ruler, as the king, if you will, of this earth. And so that was his bargaining chip. And he's like, hey, Jesus, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdom of the earth. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus is like, listen, I got my own kingdom. I don't, what, do, what do I need with your kingdom, Right? And so, ultimately, I'm going to get it anyway, right? I'm, I'm winning the whole deal. I'm getting the whole deck when this is all the chips are coming my way anyway. Why would I bow down to you? And so, really, the world got a sneak preview of what it would be like for God's kingdom to come to earth when God's son came to earth to set up his kingdom. And, uh, and, and, and the world missed it. But, but if, if, we, if we got a taste, that was, that was a taste of what it would be like to have uh, the kingdom of God here on earth through the person and work of Jesus Christ. According to Mark 1.15, the first words out of Jesus' mouth were, the kingdom of God is what? Is at hand. It's right here. Here I am. Repent and believe the gospel. According to, to Luke 1, verse 31, Gabriel announced to Mary when, when he, she was he was announcing the birth of Christ, he promised or he told her that Jesus, her, her child, whose name was Jesus, was going to be the promised king who would sit on the throne of David. So the kingdom was coming. Luke 17, 
verses 20 and 21, Jesus said to the Pharisees that the kingdom was in their midst. You guys don't even realize that the kingdom of God is right here standing in front of you. And Jesus constantly referred to the kingdom of God. Why? Because he was the prince, if you will, right? He was the king um, who had come. He compared God's kingdom to many different things, to a field with wheat and tares, a mustard seed that grows up uh, into a tree, a leaven that permeates an entire loaf of bread, a, a treasure hid in the field, the pearl of great price. Jesus was constantly uh, talking about the kingdom of God, illustrating the kingdom of God. His whole ministry was about the kingdom of God. And he required anyone who wanted to be a part of God's kingdom to give up everything to follow and obey him as their Lord and Master. And yet even though Christ offered himself to the nation of Israel as their king, according to Matthew 23, verse 37, the Jews rejected him as their king and they killed him because they were looking for an earthly kingdom. And they wanted Jesus to, to regain their independence and reestablish the monarchy uh, in Rome. And, and, they would, and they wanted him to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, where they would reign with him. So they were looking for a national and political kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom. And what they didn't realize was that, that, that God's kingdom had to first be established in the spiritual realm through Christ's suffering and dying on the cross, rather than in the physical realm through the conquering of the Romans. And so consequently, Christ's literal earthly kingdom was postponed until Israel repents and receives Christ as their Messiah. We, we've been learning about that in Acts uh, chapter 3. In the meantime, we also know according to Romans chapter 9, this was all part of God's sovereign plan, uh, the, the hardening of Israel uh, to the gospel so that he could graft in who? The Gentiles into the kingdom. And so we need to understand that, that even though he didn't set up, even though Jesus didn't set up his earthly physical kingdom, he did establish his heavenly spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all those who believed in him. If you remember what he said to, to uh, uh, Nicodemus, Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, verse 5, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter what? The kingdom of God. So in order to enter the kingdom of God, you had to be born again. And so those people that were born again entered the kingdom. And so Christ's kingdom did come in that he's reigning as the king of kings and lord of lords in the hearts of his followers. And he's in the process of building an invisible kingdom made up of all those who profess faith in Christ and allegiance to his son, Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom of God dwells in your heart. If you're a Christian, the kingdom of God dwells in your heart. Right now, on this earth, in your life, in your heart. James Montgomery Boyce says it well. He says, in this spiritual aspect, the kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus Christ in the lives of those who have been spiritually reborn and who are being daily and increasingly transformed. If you've been reborn, if you've been born again, and you're being increasingly transformed into the image of Christ, that is evidence that you have the kingdom of God uh, in your heart. And so, so there's this present aspect of God's kingdom. The kingdom is here, but there's also a future 
aspect of the kingdom. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a both here and a, now, a here and now and a yet to come. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, we live now between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. Basically, the kingdom was inaugurated when Christ came, right? Uh, the first time. And it will be consummated when Christ comes the second time. And so we live in this now and not yet uh, between the, com- the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And see, when Christ, uh, you know, while God's kingdom is already here, there's, there's this future aspect that will happen at Christ's second coming. So when Christ returns, he'll destroy the kings of the world and set up his earthly kingdom and reign for a thousand years. We, we know that from Revelation 19 and 20, the battle of Armageddon, the millennial reign of Christ, followed by the new heavens and the new earth. So Christ's kingdom right now is spiritual, but someday it will become literal, historical, and earthly. It will be a literal kingdom here on this earth that will lead into all eternity, forever and ever. And so ultimately this prayer, thy kingdom come, will be answered when the heavens split open and Christ comes down on the Mount of Olives and sets up his throne in Jerusalem. That is really the ultimate fulfillment when he establishes his kingdom here on earth. That, that's when it will come. And so, again, we need to answer all that and, and help you understand all that so that we can answer, I think, what's the more important question. And most of you already knew when, what we're talking about, when, thy kingdom come, okay? But, but the, the, I think the bigger issue here is how will this kingdom come? Okay, we know when it's going to come. We know it's going to come when Christ comes back. When he returns. But, but how is this kingdom, how is this his kingdom going to come? And I think that's more of the essence of this prayer. Back in Matthew chapter 6, thy kingdom come. You say, well, how is it, it going to come? Well, I think, first of all, we need to understand it's not going to come without us praying for it. It's not going to come without us praying for it. And, and this, really, this phrase here, thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come, this is an evangelistic missionary prayer. Okay, this is a, this is a call for the conversion of souls. What, what is it that's keeping, quote-unquote, keeping Christ from returning? He's waiting for the nations, right, to hear the gospel. And until that last person that he's ordained to get saved, right, that last elect person is saved, he's not coming back. And so this is a, this is a missionary prayer. This is, this is a prayer that all men would submit to God's reign over them rather than to continue to live in rebellion against him. And so we're talking about this is, I mean, you say, well, how do I do this? How, what, how should this affect my prayers? You should pray missionary prayers. You should be praying for missions. I mean, I, you can, just by praying for missions, you're fulfilling this, you're modeling uh, your prayers after this prayer. You're following the pattern that Jesus said here. Your kingdom come. You're praying for missions. You're praying for the salvation of your family. You're praying for the salvation of your neighbors, for the people you work with, the people you go to school with. You're praying for the spread of the gospel throughout the world. You're praying for our missionaries. Uh, you're praying for the church of Jesus Christ to, to, to advance and expand uh, like we see in the book of Acts through the missionary journeys of Paul to, to just go throughout the earth that the word of God would run rapidly I love what Piper says in, in his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. I know a number of you have read this book. It's, 
It's a book that we encourage people that are going on a short-term mission trip, always grab a book and read it on the plane as you're traveling to wherever you're going just to get you all fired up. And this is one of those books that will get you all fired up uh, to hit the ground running uh, you know, on a mission trip. But, but this is in his chapter on the supremacy of God in missions through prayer. And he has a subtitle here, The Truly Awesome Place of Prayer in the Purpose of God. He says this, now we can say and again safely and stunningly what the awesome place of prayer is in the purpose of God to fill the earth with his glory. Not only has God made the accomplishment of his purposes hang on the preaching of the word, he has also made the success of that preaching hang on prayer. We know that the advancement of, of the kingdom is all about the gospel, right? And, and, and spreading the spread of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, how men can be saved. That there's a king who deserves to be honored and worshipped and submitted to and followed and obeyed. He says God's goal to be glorified will not succeed without the powerful proclamation of the gospel. And that gospel will not be proclaimed in power to all the nations without the prevailing, earnest, faith-filled prayers of God's people. This is the awesome place of prayer and the purpose of God for the world. That purpose won't happen without prayer. And so, again, we need, to, we need to come to grips with this, that, that, that Christ isn't coming back without us praying for it. Because without us praying, the gospel's not going to go forth with power, right? And people aren't going to get saved and not all that. So, so we're, we're a part of, if you will, bringing in the kingdom, bringing the kingdom from heaven to earth through our prayers. And particularly our mission prayers, our prayers for evangelism, our prayers for the lost, our prayers for the spread of the gospel. You're praying your kingdom come. I think, secondly, we need to understand it's not going to come without us also participating in bringing the kingdom. And not only uh, can we pray, and I don't, I don't think that's the only thing we can do in, in regards to your kingdom come, but we also need to be praying not just for, for missions and for the spread of the gospel, we need to be praying that God would reign in our hearts and lives so that we could be an example to lost people around us of what it means to live as a subject of the king, to be a loyal citizen of heaven. And so it, when we pray, we need to be welcoming and affirming God's right to reign over our lives and, and, and to plead with him to cause men to acknowledge and submit to his reign over their lives as he has our lives, as we have our lives. And, and so really, it, it's, um, it's a calling out to God to help us be the subjects that we're supposed to be. Romans 14, 17 is, is a helpful uh, verse here. Romans 14, 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You want to have the kingdom of God in your own heart and life? You need to pray for God's righteousness, that he would make you more righteous. In other words, that you would do the, the right things um, in, in this world where so many are doing the wrong things. That will make you stick out, right, and be a witness. Um, that he would fill you with uh, his peace, right? There's so many people that are anxious and worried and, and freaking out about stuff and, and he, that people see a peace in your life. That's part of being a kingdom person. And also the joy, that you would experience the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's when you have righteousness, when you live a righteous life, when you live with a, with a sense of peace, 
that surpasses all understanding and people can't figure out why you're so at rest and you're not anxious and you're not worried about all the stuff that's going on in this world. And, and when you have this joy, you're just, you're just happy in the Lord. Listen, that is going to be making the kingdom of God manifest, showing them the kingdom of God, being that light, letting your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so, so we need to pray that, 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 that God would enthrone himself as Lord of our lives through, and, and through our witness, more people would submit to him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Packer says it this way, I like this. He says, start with me. This is what the prayer, the, for, uh, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. What you're saying is, Lord, start with me. Make me your fully obedient subject and use me to extend the kingdom and so be your means of answering my prayer. Isn't that good? We're praying, your kingdom come, but we're saying, Lord, use me to answer that prayer. I want to be part of bringing your kingdom down. And so I need to live in a way that bears witness that we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and, and we, can, we can pray that we would, we would bear witness in our job and in our family and at our school and, and, and all these, these, these things. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, we spent a, a lot of time talking about the kingdom when we, we were in Acts chapter 1 because the disciples still were looking for the kingdom. After he resurrected, he's like, oh, this is even better now, okay? We, okay, we didn't get the death thing. We didn't get the fact that he had to die, and we were all sad that he died, but now he's come back to life. Surely now he's going to go put a whooping on the Romans and, and kick them out, and we're going to set up a kingdom, right? And so they're saying in Acts chapter 1, they came together and they said, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, hey, that's not for you to know. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my what? Witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So he says, listen, stop worrying about it. And, and, and immediately, if you remember right, after these things, it says he was lifted up, he ascended, and, and went out of sight. They're all standing there going, gawking, and the angel showed up and said, hey, why are you guys looking up in the sky? He's coming back. But he's giving, in the meantime, he's giving you a job to do, right? And so, yeah, we're praying that Jesus would come back. Jesus, come quickly. We want you to come back so bad. We want you to come back tonight. We want you to come back tomorrow. Sometimes we like pray, Lord, come back next Monday because I really got an exciting weekend planned, right? <laughs> but we should, Lord, come back quickly. But in the meantime, I've got a job to do. And see, like the, we don't want to be like the Thessalonians, right, that got all excited, got so excited about the fact that Jesus is coming back, they, sold, they, they quit their jobs, they sold everything and sat up on the roof and waited for Jesus to come back. And, and Paul's like, listen, guys, that's not what I was, you missed the whole point, okay? Jesus is coming back, none of us know when it's going to happen, and we shouldn't just be sitting around being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, Right? We need to get to work. We need to be occupying till he comes. We need to be witnessing. And this is our time to witness and share the gospel. And so we need to understand that everything we do, everywhere we go, has kingdom implications. Do you understand what I mean by that? Everywhere you go, everywhere, everything you do has kingdom implications. You're sitting on an airplane, like Sharon was sharing her testimony. I mean, flying, just catching a flight back from L.A. to Houston. Yeah, I just got to get home. I'm tired. I've you know, been, been away. I can't wait to get home. Listen, that has kingdom implications. 
You're going to walk into Walmart tomorrow, or you're going to go to work tomorrow, you're going to go to school tomorrow, you're going to go somewhere tomorrow, and, and, and you're thinking, well, I just got to go to work today. Do you realize your job has kingdom implications? You say, what are you talking about? I'm a plumber. What are you talking about? I'm a, an accountant. Listen, it's not about the plumbing and the accounting. It's about the people that you're going to interact with, that you're going to interface with. Every one of those people you meet tomorrow, whether it's in Walmart, at the gas station, at your school, at work, getting your mail at the mailbox out in the street, that, that, that has kingdom implications. And see, if it's our heart's desire to see his kingdom come, if you wake up tomorrow morning and you say, Father, your kingdom come, I want, I want you to come back. I want, I want you to come back. And, and, and in the meantime, I want to be faithful to witness to people and help them to understand that you're the king that reigns over all things and they need to submit to you and honor you and worship you. I guess, guess what? You're going to go to work with a different mindset. You're going to go out and get your mail and bump into your neighbor and have a totally different perspective on that. Because why? You were just praying and you have a heart's desire to see his kingdom come. You're going to be ready to share the hope of the gospel with anyone you meet, anywhere you are. Go, you go to the gym and work out. Do you realize working out has kingdom implications? You go to lunch tomorrow. You know, your lunch hour has kingdom implications when you have this heart of your kingdom come. R.C. Sproul said it well. He said, the only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and as subjects of the king. That good, isn't it? It's never going to be manifest until Christ comes unless we manifest it in the way we live as citizens of heaven. John Calvin said it this way, that the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. There's this invisible kingdom out there. We, we know it. We're part of it. But the rest of the world doesn't have a clue what's going on behind the scenes, right? And it shouldn't be a secret. They should know because we as Christians make it visible to them. Years ago, a great and godly bishop in the Church of England named Taylor Smith wrote the following in his personal memoirs. This is beautiful, powerful. He said this, quote, As soon as I awake each morning, I rise from my bed at once. I dress promptly. I wash myself, shave, and comb my hair. Then fully attired, wide awake, and properly groomed, I go quietly to my study, and there, before God Almighty and Christ my King, I humbly present myself as a loyal subject to my sovereign, ready and eager to be of service to him for that day. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that should be our heart. Every day we wake up and we get ready and we, we don't just kind of sleepily just kind of go into our quiet time, but we recognize the fact we're going into the presence of Almighty God and that we come as his loyal subject and here I am to present myself for your service today. How may I serve you today? I'm making myself available. I'm at your liege. And so how is the kingdom going to come it's going to come through our prayers for the consummation of God's kingdom, but also by our participation in being witnesses of the king, being heralds of the king, if you will, praying for souls and living like a loyal citizen of the king or a subject of the king. You know, one of my prayer heroes is, is David Brainerd. We've talked about him before. But uh, he had such an amazing prayer life by the grace of God. And, and it was such a, so compelling to Jonathan Edwards. 
so impressed Jonathan Edwards that he asked if he could publish his memoirs, his prayer journal, his diary. And, of course, David Brainerd didn't want him to do that. He didn't want to bring any attention to himself, but he finally agreed. And, and so, so Jonathan Edwards published the life and diary of David Brainerd. Of all the things that Jonathan Edwards ever printed or published, this was the thing that sold the most, was the life and diary of David Brainerd. But, but just listen. I just want to read for you just a couple entries from his diary, and you're going to get the, the sense. This is You say, well, how do I do this? What does it sound like? When I'm praying... Okay, God, Jesus didn't tell me just to pray your kingdom come. I, I think that would be an appropriate phrase or an expression to use when you pray. But that, that's, just, that's just one little phrase. How can you, how can you unpack that? What, what does that look like? What does that sound like when you pray? I'll tell you. I exceedingly long that God would get to himself a name among the heathens. And I appeal to him with greatest freedom that he knew I preferred him above my chief joy. Indeed, I had no notion of joy from this world. I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls for Christ. I continued in this frame all the evening and night. While I was asleep, I dreamed these things, and when I waked, the first thing I thought of was the great work of pleading for God against Satan. By the way, the, the title of this message is Pleading for God's Program. That's really what this is all about, Pleading for God's Program. He also wrote this, both morning and evening I enjoyed some intenseness of soul in prayer and longed for the enlargement of Christ's kingdom in the world. And then the final entry of his diary on his deathbed, this is what he wrote. Oh, that his kingdom might come in the world, that they might all love and glorify you for what you are in yourself and that the blessed Redeemer might see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He was praying to God, God, I want you to be satisfied. I want you to get what you want. And what you want, what you desire, is for you to be glorified. One more prayer, and I'll just use this as our closing prayer. The Puritans got this. They, they understood how to pray, your kingdom come. In fact, that song that we started off with, uh, your kingdom come after prayer uh, is based on this particular prayer uh, in, the pure, uh, in the Valley of Vision. And it's called God's Cause. And I just want to ask you just to bow your head. Close your eyes. And again, this is an example of what our prayers should sound like, how we should pray in light of this phrase, your kingdom come. And let's just make this our closing prayer for tonight. Sovereign God, your cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to you with greatest freedom to set up your kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify yourself and I will rejoice for to bring honor to your name is my sole desire. I adore you that you are God and I long that others should know it and feel it and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise you, that you might have all glory from this intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to you for your dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight, but you can accomplish great things. The cause is yours. It is your glory. It is to your glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as you will. Do with me as you will, but oh, promote thy cause. Let your kingdom come. 
Let your blessed interest be advanced in this world. Oh, do bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for you to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is your cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. Oh, answer thou my request. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.